It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. When it comes to pressing play, we all do it in different ways. Travel, road trips, sports, roller coasters. Some people like to get their heart pumping. Others like to kick back with a beer and a good conversation. This hour, we're going to take you to one of the newest roller coasters at Disney World. You'll visit a unique resort. But first, play ball. It's a dream for many. A summer road trip to all 30 Major League Baseball parks. You'll often see a couple of college buddies doing it, maybe a kid and their dad, or a couple of brothers. Yeah, so as Franciscan friars, we are all brothers. These are brothers in God, not in blood. Meet Father Tito Serrano and Father Casey Cole. They're Franciscan friars in the middle of this epic baseball adventure, combining their passion for play and baseball with their passion for Christ in full traditional brown robes. It's called a habit, so it's uh, from the Latin habitus, so it's a way of life. So we're putting on a way of life. It reminds us who we are and what we do, the vows we take. We wear a cord, just a rope around our, our waist. It has three knots in it. The vows of poverty, chastity, obedience just reminds us who we are. Some might mistake them for monks or Jedi cosplayers, but whether you know who they are or not, they turn a lot of heads at a major league ballpark because they look out of place. On a Tuesday night in June, I walked around Fenway Park in Boston with Father Tito and Father Casey. We watched the Red Sox beat the A's, drank a few beers, and talked about their mission. So we are on top of the Green Monster at Fenway Park, one of the most distinct and famous places in all of sports. That's Father Casey. He's 33, short brown hair, sunglasses, Sam Adams summer ale in his hand. Honestly, if it weren't for the robes, you probably wouldn't look twice at him. If you know, you know. And so some people absolutely know, and they come right up to us, and they ask us for prayers. They, they're so excited to see us. I'm doing well, thank you. Can I get a blessing? Absolutely. What's your name? My name is Lisanda. We're here from California. My kids are going to go play uh, baseball in Cooperstown. So. All right. Well, why don't we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we ask that you bless Lisandro and his family for his son to play baseball. Most people, I'd say 70% of people, think that we're fans of the Padres in cosplay or we're Jedi. So then we tell them we're actually we're real priests and we live poverty, chastity, and obedience. We love Jesus Christ. You know, we, you go with the whole spiel. Some people are like, cool, bro, and they walk away. And then others, like, that's so fascinating. I've never heard of anything like this. Tell me more. Do you guys go up to people or you wait for people to come to you? We wait entirely for people to come up to us. We do walk by and we are inviting and we smile and wave and... Sometimes they'll give us a little bit back and we'll just kind of say, hey, how you doing? And then that starts the conversation. But for the most part, we wait for them to engage us. And it's not just conversations. I actually heard a confession at one of the stadiums. A guy had been away from the church for 25 years. And he, over the last year or so with the pandemic, was starting to feel this nagging inside of his heart that something was missing in his life. And so he knew he wanted to come back. And so he asked me, how do I do that? And I said, well, you can go to your confession. You can go to your parish priest, something like that. And he said, how do I do that? He said, well, we could do it right now. And so we just found a quiet spot. I put our beer down and uh, we just I heard his confession. I have a confession. I know almost nothing about Franciscan friars, aside from the fact that they're Catholic and all the missions in California dating back to the 1700s. That's them. I had a lot of questions, particularly about the robes. Father Tito, 35, dark curly hair and a beard, bright yellow neon sunglasses, also a Sam Adams in hand. He answered my questions with the patience of a saint. Uh, it takes some getting used to. I remember when I first received the habit and I wore it in public, I was like, oh, this is different. And as a 
kid, I was very shy, so I had to learn how to be okay with that to be a, such a public figure. Because whether or not we're wearing the habit, if we were regular priests in the diocese wearing collars, we'd still stick out, right? People still notice that. Um, the nice thing about the habit, the robe, is people aren't quite as used to it. So instead of getting, you know, the looks where people assume we, they already know who we are, they have comes up come up to us with questions. Who are you? What's going on? What are you wearing? What does this mean? And that gives us an opportunity to talk, which I really love. We're, we're here on a beautiful night in, in June, but like, what's it like in those robes when it's hot and muggy outside? <laughs> when it's hot and muggy, it can be pr pretty brutal. The robes are best when it's breezy. Can I ask what's underneath? Uh, T-shirt and shorts. And for you? Same thing. I mean, you can't find a better job in the world, right? I get to wear sandals and basketball shorts to formal occasions. <laughs> but you know, th there's something about that the habit that is just distinct. So that for us, it is about that evangelism. And I think it's so essential to us being at the parks wearing it is we'd rather come here and sweat and show a little penance. We need to be reminded sometimes that we, we're sinners and that we, we need a little discomfort in our life. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Absolutely. It's nice meeting you. God bless you. Yeah. Yeah. Number 12. Who are you guys rooting for? Always the home team. Always the home team. Even, even it's my team. We rooted for the home team last week. Well, I did. Tito didn't. Tito. Uh, I'm a Diamondbacks fan, and I've, even though they're not the greatest team, they're my team. And so whenever they're playing someone, i got to root for them. Do you guys know the percentage of the home team that's won at the games that you've been to? Nine and two. They're nine and two at home. They're about to be ten and two. Wow. Are you reading something into that? Do you feel that it has something to do with you guys? I feel that we have presence, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think about athletes who pray to God, who, who give grace to God after shots, after games? Do you think God cares who wins and loses a, a sporting event? One of the things we're showing in this tour is that there's nothing separate from God's. There's not our church life on Sunday and then we get to do anything else we want. God is in this game, for sure. And maybe he's manipulating the score. I don't know. I, I do think we've joked that God hates Cleveland. And obviously, in more Boston, he loves the Patriots. But... Um, you know, joking aside, I do think that God cares about what this means to people. And I think if uh, athletes who do the sign of the cross afterwards and say, you know, thanks to God, I just kind of say, you know what, they're thanking God for the talent that they have, for the gift that they've been given, and for helping them get to that moment. So, I don't know. Does God love a team? No. Is God answering those specific prayers? No. But can God work through sports? Absolutely. I mean, think about the ways that sports have transformed people. I think they, they touch us emotionally. They give us a transcendent experience. God is here, for sure. Oh, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the hole. How about the road trip aspect of it? I kind of romanticize that you're on long stretches having great conversations about God and life. And is that the case? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes we argue about a song or a movie. <laughs> yeah, we're talking a lot about the world and what the world needs and what we should be doing as Franciscans and uh, answering the big questions. That's what we do. That's what interests us. And nothing will test a relationship like a road trip. Have, have you, have you, I mean, you're pretty early into this, but have you been tested? I'm sure I've tested him. <laughs> uh, I take naps in the afternoon in the car and I snore a little bit. So there's that. There is one thing they disagree on, though, strongly. We're doing the way. You're Woo. suggesting that there's a purpose to the wave. There is. It's to hype up your team. This is one of the first conflicts I think I've seen between <laughs> you two. 
You're anti-wave and you're pro-wave? We get into this every time the wave comes up. <laughs> I think it's a silly thing that you've got to do to keep people who don't care about baseball involved. And I think it's a fun thing to do for everyone involved. But minor arguments over the wave won't distract them from the mission at hand. Can we pray for you in some way? Uh, yeah. Um, my mom's got a tumor in her throat. Oh, oh we definitely yeah, pray yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be What's very grateful. Fun. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I would appreciate that a lot. Yeah, we'll yeah, offer a prayer tonight for you. Thank you so much, guys. Nice to meet you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. The blessings, thirsty work. So quick pit stop for beer number two. Uh, can I get a summer ale? Same. Two summer ales. I have to see your IDs, guys. <laughs> if I can't trust you, I guess there's nobody I should trust, but there's a camera up there watching me. Thank you. Now, what are you getting? Summer ales, you said? Up on the Green Monster, in the later innings of the game, I talked to Father Tito about his Franciscan friar origin story. He told me he always felt a calling to be of service. He just wasn't sure what to do with that. His father was in the Air Force. The family moved around a lot. But one thing that was consistent, base to base, town to town, was the church. There, and then in college, he found his people. In this younger generation that I've, no I've noticed this, working at a college campus, and, and Father Casey works with high school students, they're looking for purpose, they're looking for service, they're looking for meaning. And even though my life does come with certain sacrifices, it offers those things in spades. I have a sense of purpose, I have a sense of service, I have a, a sense of justice where I'm trying to leave the world better than I found it. And I try to do that with love and generosity and I think it's a very attractive lifestyle, especially to a lot of people coming up. I just don't think they know it exists. And what was your parents' reaction to the lifestyle that you chose? Uh, my mom was very pleased and very supportive. My dad was a little bit confused. He wasn't against it, he just didn't understand it. Father Casey then bellies up to the standing room area, overlooking the whole stadium, politely nursing a Coors Light, someone in bottom. I want to do something different with my life. You know, we called, you know, a lot of people have basic lives, you know, we joke, but you know, there's a lot of great things in the normal life, but I wanted something radical. I wanted something that was going to make a difference in the world. <laughs> I wanted to serve the poor, I wanted to share about Jesus, and getting married was great, and there are definitely married people that can do that, but I wanted to do this full-time, and there are certain things about having kids that make that your full-time job. you had romantic relationships in the past? I, uh, I knew what I was saying no to. I had been in love a number of times. I had dated um, two, two people for two-year relationships in high school and college. Um, yeah, I, I'd very much been in love, and I knew that I wanted this more. It's a seemingly contrary life to want these days, a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience, when it feels like the majority of people their age are posting videos chasing clout, sex, and independence, which is fine by them. It doesn't feel like Father Tito and Father Casey are looking to convert anyone, at least not overtly. They just want to share their experience and hear about yours while having a beer at a ballpark on a warm summer night. Flight delays and cancellations, high gas prices and crowded highways, these are the travel headlines we hear when we press play these days. But some are seeking a quieter path, less chaos, more family traditions. Reporter E.J. Becker takes us to a one-of-a-kind resort that you may have heard of and yet never knew existed. It was my dad's love of the mountains that first brought me out here, and it was a lifelong connection for us. And when Larry Schneider says lifelong, he means it. He hiked out here until he was 92. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful memories. When Larry was seven or eight years old, his dad brought him to the YMCA of the Rockies in Estes Park, Colorado. 
where then and now families gather to enjoy nature, church groups find a different kind of sanctuary, and kids by the thousands. We came out here most summers, and it just became a second home to me. It's, it really is a special place. But when you think of the YMCA, don't you think of a big sweaty building with a swimming pool and a running track? <laughs> right. We are not what we call a swim and gym YMCA. That becomes obvious when you find out that Karen Lloyd D'Onofrio's title at the YMCA of the Rockies is historian and director of the Wise Museum. We were originally set up as a vacation training school for YMCA leaders that were focused and lived in the West. She says that back about 1907, before Estes Park was a city, the Y, having long been looking for a meeting place, decided on a quiet, pristine piece of land in the Rocky Mountains. A few years later, the federal government decided to surround it with a national park. There were early struggles. The Great Depression was, um, like for many other people, um, a hard time for the YMCA of the Rockies. And there was discussion about selling the land to the park. But two men came together and prevented the site being sold. So it continued as a place for people to gather together for training, meetings, fellowship, and meals, often in large group tents. Sleeping at the Y camp, as it was called, was in small private tents against the backdrop of the mountains. Over the last century plus, the crowds have grown, from Y staff on retreat to thousands of people from around the world. And those tents have evolved into rustic cabins with plumbing and electricity, and even bigger lodges. I believe we have over 250 cabins. It's the largest North American YMCA, period. We can serve 5,000 people a night. Forty years ago this summer, Alan Jackson, not the country singer, became a wrangler in the stable at the YMCA of the Rockies. I was 16 years old my first summer, never been away from home from Kansas, and had the time of my life, and that was 40 years ago. Since the YMCA first opened in 1907, the livery has been a tradition for generations of Y-Camp families and for the teenagers who work there as wranglers every summer, helping kids and adults learn to ride horses. Teenagers like Alan, who started as a wrangler and now owns the business. His wife and son, both former wranglers, run it with him. We do 20 to 25,000 riders a summer. Moms, dads, and of course thousands of wide-eyed kids dreaming of roping, riding, and a big old yeehaw. And we've learned over the years that you always put the kids in front and mom next and dad in back. Because if you put the kids behind mom, mom turns around the whole time. And they start them young, too, on a little trail across from the stables. What's the pony's name? Buttons. On one of five or so ponies. What pony's behind you? Nibbles. It is Nibbles behind you, that's right. So little cowgirls and cowboys can saddle up for their first ride. It's been really neat to see the kids that I put on their first horse, they're working for me when they're in college, and now I'm putting their kids on their first horse. I've been horseback riding, we go almost every year, so that's really fun. Elizabeth Crocker from Kansas City didn't just take her first horseback ride at the YMCA of the Rockies. I took my first steps in Barclay Lodge. There's a lot of memories here. We've been there every year of her life, and it's kind of home away from home for her. Glenn Crocker is her dad, and this year he and Elizabeth went to Y Camp a couple of months earlier than usual. It had always been my dream since I was 
like seven years old to come here as soon as I turned 18. So she could start her summer job. I work at the front desk, which is handling check-ins and answering questions from the guests. Over her lifetime, Elizabeth and her dad have done so many things at the YMCA of the Rockies. Mini golf. The parachute thing where all the kids, you know, have the giant parachute. Swimming, roller skating. Nature walks for the kids. Volleyball. Night hikes for parents. Basketball. They've got an astronomy program. There's a craft building, mountain bike rentals, and of course, perhaps the biggest draw of all. When I was 11, I did Across the Park, which is an 18-mile hike. I really fell in love with hiking then. I think my favorite memory with my dad is Estes Cone, which is about a six-mile hike. One year, Elizabeth and I decided to do these three mountains, Chapin, Chiquita, and Ypsilon. And it was just us two. We had a lot of fun doing that hike together. Then we were completely exhausted. And they'll be back at it just a couple of weeks from now. Glenn and his wife will return to the Y and the Rockies with their church which has been taking families to the same lodge the same week of the year for almost half a century. And Elizabeth is planning to take time off from the front desk to hike with her dad. There was at one time a a period where I didn't come out. I'd been away for a a few years and came back and just did that. Oh, it's so nice to be back. (laughs) He's now a fixture at the Y when hiking season kicks into gear. I'm a hike master. I retired two years ago. This is my second year as a volunteer hike master. It's my dream retirement. I mean, it's the best job in the world. And wherever he's hiking, the memories of his hikes with his dad and their time at Y Camp are never far from his mind. Hiking with my dad up to the lock, it was a lousy day. This was in the fall. It was rainy and cold. And we almost turned around. But we kept going. And by the time we got to the lake, there was this beautiful new snow, the white clouds. It felt like heaven. That, that was what we said to each other. This, this just feels like heaven. And maybe to some it is heaven. To others, it's home. To all, it's open and welcoming. Whether you want to hike, ride a pony, or just sit in front of the cabin and soak in the scenery. It really is fun to stay at the, well, you know the words. Amusement and theme parks, they're jumping this summer season, some almost back to pre-pandemic levels. Fans and thrill-seekers returning to press play on roller coasters, both old and new. ABC Entertainment contributor Matt Wolf had the tough assignment of checking out one of the latest premier attractions at Disney World that literally has a lot riding on it. Jason, here at Walt Disney World, there are many, many different occupations. One could be official Disney ambassadors like Ravon and Allie. It is the best job in the world, I will say. <laughs> and that is from 50 years ago and then 50 years and beyond. To infinity and beyond. You got to slide that in. All right. I'm thinking now is the time to mention that Disney Parks and ABC News are both owned by ABC parent company Disney. Oh, and if mouse ears are your jam, you might want to talk to Chris Schmidt. You're talking to the person who oversees the strategy for Mickey Ears? Oh, okay, okay. So here's my pitch. What do you think? Ears with actual fireworks, working fireworks. How, how does that land? 
I love all of your ideas. <laughs> I'm sure the team will love to continue to hear all of these amazing options. Okay, but what about the Imagineers? Those legendary designers, architects of all the Disney attractions from top to bottom, with people getting out again, leaving staycations behind, and pressing play on theme parks both small and big, there is a huge surge in attendance, along with the inevitable price increases. So in turn, people like me want value. We're looking for those new rides and more immersive experiences for our buck in this economy. So it's no surprise the magic makers here at Disney had to put together something literally out of this world. Here at Epcot, when you're walking under the monorail, you'll see a lot happening. A major revamp of the park is underway for Epcot's 40th anniversary. And over here at the wonders of Xandar Pavilion, past the full-size replica of a Star Blaster, you've arrived at the new home of one of the longest enclosed coasters in the world, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind. Now for the uninitiated, the new attraction is based on the hit Guardians of the Galaxy film series starring Chris Pratt, David Bautista, and some little tree dude that we all adore. This is all retrofitted from the old Ellen's World of Energy Pavilion. It covers 200,000 square feet all in all, stretching longer than a football field. I mean, not even Groot himself could weave this colossal structure into existence. That's the job of the Disney Imagineers. Come on, let's go inside and talk to some of them. I've been working on this since 2016. All right, we're inside the ride queue here at the Galaxarium. It's a very cool planetarium-like kind of setup where you wait to get in line on Cosmic Rewind. I'm with Wyatt Winter, senior producer for Imagineering, yet another cool title. Uh, you're the guy tasked with making this thing work from a storytelling perspective. L looking around here, you've got uh, I mean, planets, galaxies, replica models of the planet Xandar. I, I'd imagine there's a lot of setup here before you get actually on the coaster itself. That's exactly it. So if you think, if you come in and you know nothing about it, you just know, hey, here's a new thing at Epcot. You, we want you to enjoy that. And so in all these spaces, you start to learn about the characters, see who they are. Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. But if you're that super fan that have seen the movies for the umpteenth time, you know Epcot, there's some Easter eggs, there's some details and references that we want you to catch too. You can't maybe take it all in the first time, so you have to come back and write again to get a few different jokes or a different song as well. <laughs> he said write it again. I'm, I'm having enough problems working the nerve up to get on this thing once. Oh, well, I'm excited you to do it, and good luck. You're going to need it. Why you're not helping matters right now. <laughs> That's right. You're listening to the guy who has trouble getting on a merry-go-round to say nothing about an enclosed roller coaster. Oh, wait, I mean omni-coaster. Okay, so what exactly makes that a thing, by the way? That's where Disney Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald comes in. And he's been doing this kind of stuff for Disney since 1979. We had to create a coaster that would allow you to focus the audience on every moment in the attraction that we wanted to. You know, in a standard coaster, you are locked to that track, and wherever that track is pointed, you are pointed. Because we're story-driven, then we then worked with our ride group and said, can you create a coaster that will allow us to, just as in the Haunted Mansion, as we can turn vehicles toward what we want you to see, can we do that on a ride? He sounds really happy about the fact that the cars actually spin around 360 degrees. Oh, but wait, there's more. For example, the first reverse launch that we've ever had by having that ability to turn the 
the cabs in the round, forward, backward, wherever, allows us to have spin. <laughs> and it all starts with a reverse launch. You had to put that one in there, right? <laughs> okay. Tom also told me there's a very real human element to all of this effort, too, considering what the last couple of years have been like for a lot of us. I think people want their memories back. Their kids may be growing up. Their grandkids may be growing up. We did lean into that in our pre-show. You know, one of the things that was most interesting for us from a storytelling standpoint is the Guardians film exists in our world. We can have Peter Quill in our pre-show talking about his memories of Epcot and how much he loves it. I finally found my family. Don't you understand that? I thought you already had. A few more fun facts before we jump on this thing. Try to picture 9,000 plus cubic yards of concrete along with 80 miles of rebar, six years to bring to life. I can't even gauge the amount of man hours that were probably put into this thing from conception to construction, design and completion. The structure itself, so big, you can fit four of Epcot's famed spaceship Earth globes into this thing. Not intimidating by any measure. Now, all this a key part of a major ongoing overhaul here at Epcot for the park's 40th anniversary, and one that is reportedly costing over $500 million and coming off the back end of an unprecedented pandemic park shutdown. As part of this transformation, we were looking at things that we could bring more family attractions, but things that could put it on the map that says, if I didn't go to Epcot during my Florida visit, I missed something. I missed something important. I'm with Zach Ridley, the lead creative executive for Epcot and Disney Imagineering here inside Cosmic Rewind. So in many ways, you know, this has been your baby from the start. Tell me a little bit about the sounds we're hearing right now and what we're going to hear on this thing getting on. Well, what's great is it's, it's a very multi-layered sound experience. And, and part of that is, first, you're listening to audio of the ships. So they're kind of releasing um, uh, exhaust. You're hearing kind of humming. It all feels very much like the mechanic, like this ship's alive. It's breathing. It's here. It's been it's landed. Listen to that music, too. It's, it's movie quality. Big orchestrations, everything. Yeah, so we actually have a completely original score. The entire attraction from beginning to end was scored uh, by Tyler Bates, who had scored the films. And it's a perfect blend of what you experience and the, the tones of the, of the films and the world, but it feels totally Epcot. All right, so we're getting closer to me getting on this thing. Any, any advice? Well, the best advice I can give you is good luck. <laughs> there are those words again. There's one more crucial musical element to this whole thing, the mixtape. Back when the original Guardians of the Galaxy movie hit in 2014, the soundtrack was an instant hit, moving the needle on classic hits from David Bowie, The Jacksons, and Redbone's Come and Get Your Love. So you gotta create that vibe here too, right? Music is obviously a huge part of Guardians, and we knew that from the beginning. Imagineer Spencer Lynn finalized the playlist of songs you'll hear on the ride. Six of them, including I Ran from A Flock of Seagulls, Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and September from Earth, Wind, and Fire. We tested over 100 songs on the ride. You know, the train would pull in, and we would watch the cast members who were operating the attraction, and if they were dancing, we were like, Let's keep that one. That's probably going to be good in the long run. So I can tell you this. I'm not going to be the one dancing, no matter what song is going to be played uh, when I'm getting on this thing. Here we are. We're in the launch chamber. <laughs> Moment of truth, man. What can I tell you? And I'm with Ron, the ride operator. Uh, dude, what, what can I expect here? What am I getting into? This attraction definitely has some tricks up her sleeve. All right, now, you say tricks. What, what, what kind of tricks? Imagine Space Mountain and Rock and Roller Coaster got together and had a really precocious baby. 
<laughs> That's very funny, but you're not giving me confidence right now. You know that, right? I do. Here we go. And we're starting. What is happening? Going through the time tunnel. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> You ever feel like your your brain has sloshed to one side of your head? Yeah, I'm 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 not doing great. <laughs> so not even a great song like Blondie's one way or another can get my soul sorted out after all that. I'll spare you the rest of the minute and 30 seconds of pure terror. But but if I'm being completely honest, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind is a total blast. It's must-do if you're anywhere near Disney World this summer. Hats off to everyone here at Epcot who just killed it with this thing and helped me overcome my irrational fear of rocketing through enclosed spaces, dark enclosed spaces at 1,000 miles per hour. You have made me better. For Press Play at Epcot, Matt Wolf, ABC News. When it comes to how we press play these days, millions of people have returned to hobbies they once loved, but for whatever reason, ditched for a few years. ABC's Brian Clark is one of them, but he'll be the first to admit that his own game can be frustrating. We're talking about what we do for fun, so why am I standing in grass that's up to my waist, full maybe, hopefully not, of poison ivy, who knows what other critters? Well, that's easy. I'm playing golf. That round was a couple of days ago, but golf is something I've done a lot of since the summer of 2020, and I'm far from alone. More than 37 million Americans played golf last year, according to the National Golf Foundation. That's more than any other sport. But there is something about the experience of being outside. At least I can say that now. It was a bit different when I was keeping a few spoken notes about my time on the course. It's humid as can be out here trying to swig my water to stay cool. I'm carrying a probably 25 pound bag over my shoulder. Maybe that's not your idea of fun, but when you string together a couple of good shots, it is a pretty good time. Golf boomed during the emergence of Tiger Woods in the late 90s, but those numbers fell off all the way up until 2019. The National Golf Foundation says the number of people who played at least 25 rounds a year fell by 50% compared to the numbers of the turn of the century. But then came 2020 and the pandemic and the return of millions of people to golf. An NGF survey in August of that year found 67% of people said they were playing more because they had fewer things to do. I was one of those people, but something kept them around. A little more than a year later, 56% of people who answered that same question said golf had become more of a priority. But why do we play? It's fun, but it's equally frustrating. Just ask Eric. He plays a couple of times each week. When you hit a good shot, it goes exactly where you want it. It's exhilarating. Ooh, that's a good looking putt. Oh, I hit it. That's the shot of the day. I was playing at a public course. Those are the kinds of courses that have seen an increase in play of almost 20% compared to 2019. But a day on the course also usually brings plenty of frustration. Pro said to me the other day, like a teaching pro, that like Jack Nicholas and like Arnold Palmer or something said, like they only hit like three or four perfect shots in any round they play, like just the way they want. And that gives you a little perspective because those guys are obviously so great so I have unrealistic expectations I sort of feel like every shot I want to hit every shot perfectly 
As I was trying to find my footing around the golf course, some top professionals are also looking to find their footing. The professional sport is changing. Live Golf is backed by money from the Saudi Arabian government, and it's lured some top professionals like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson to leave the PGA Tour. That's led to questions about the Saudi government's human rights abuses. Mickelson has been front and center in this controversy. I don't condone human rights violations. I, I don't know how I can be any more clear. And I see the opportunity for Live Golf to do a lot of good for the game throughout the world, and I'm excited to be about a part of this opportunity. This marks a new era of professional golf, but this period of time is likely going to have a lasting impact on all levels of the game. The National Golf Foundation said that in 2020, a record 6.2 million people played golf and described themselves as new players. That same year saw 6 million women take the course, almost 8% more than the year prior. It still remains to be seen what the future holds, but one thing that is certain... I'll be coming back for more. Brian Clark, ABC News. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. How do you press play in your life? Some people like to race cars, others go glamping, and for some, there's nothing better than picking up a rod and reel and waiting for a nibble on the end of the line. This hour on Press Play, we'll explore all that and more. But first, when you think of fishing, you might think of one of the thousands of pristine lakes or rivers in the country pulling out bass or trout. But ABC's Alex Stone is about to take us on an urban adventure for some unique fish in Los Angeles. It's a story that might make you hold your nose. Well, good morning. It's 3 a.m. right now. We're getting the early start on this. It's hours before the sun comes up, and I'm heading out to go fishing. Nope, not looking for trout. We're going fishing today for sewer salmon or dumpster dolphin. You've never heard of those? Oh, just wait, because you and I are in for quite an experience. I would argue for most people who live here in Los Angeles, the L.A. River is thought of as essentially a sewer, a flood control channel. It is highly polluted. Most of the water is residential and business runoff, along with 35 million gallons a day of treated wastewater. It's littered with trash and homeless encampments. It was once a natural river, but in 1938, in an effort to prevent flooding, most of the L.A. River was encased in concrete. The now mainly concrete river flows along freeways, ending at the Pacific Ocean. The L.A. River has made cameos in a bunch of movies. Typically, they're chase scenes in the dry riverbed upstream from where treated wastewater is dumped in year-round, like the drag race between Danny and Leo on the river basin in the movie Grease. And in Terminator 2... Yep, that's where we're going fishing today. The sun is coming up right now, Lino, uh -huh. and we are standing overlooking 
the LA River. Yes. And I think a lot of people are going to say, wait, the LA River, isn't that that concrete? drainage basin that goes it, through, it through is. L.A. Meet Lino Jubilato, an L.A. river fly fisherman. This is where he catches his fish. He's here several times a week along the freeway. I used to come down here and fish all the time when, when it was actually fenced off, like it was close to the public. And my uncle used to, like certain sections down in Atwater, he would cut a hole in the fence, and that's how we got in. And um, But back then, you know, you had to park right next to where you fished, otherwise your car would get broken into. Years ago, it became legal to fish in the L.A. River. The fences came down, but everybody has to do it at their own risk. Just kind of work your way out here slowly. The shopping carts all over. This is rocky here, so just be careful. The water and the shoreline are littered with hidden shopping carts, rusted underneath, clothing, beer cans, everything you can imagine that would be dumped into a storm drain in the street makes its way here. Even looking right here as the sun comes up, an old shirt. I don't know what that is. Oh, yeah. Some pants. Underwear, it looks like. Oh, yeah. Like I said, you could... You could put together a full wardrobe in this spot. He's actually not kidding about that. He went out with a female angler a while back fishing the L.A. River, and the carp they pulled up had a woman's bra covering its eyes. It was, the, it was so hysterical because this bra was covering the face of the carp, and it just quit. But it didn't end there. And it was a purple bra. So, you know, that was funny. We laughed. Uh, flash forward a couple of months, and I'm fishing not just far to the left, Victoria's Secret bra by mind you and a couple of months later i'm fishing over here and i catch the matching panties what are the odds of that Leave a purple out. i'm not even kidding <laughs> he says it actually was the matching part of that set but he has also found more gruesome things in the river well the saddest thing i've seen is uh, you know for years every time i would get snagged onto something i would jokingly say oh my god i hope it's not a body you know but one one year i was out here with my brother and and i I turn around and I'm like, kind of thought I saw something looks like a body. I'm like, no way. Then I realized, oh my God, it is. So I ran over to make sure. I thought maybe they were okay, you know, fell or something. And but it ended up to be a, a body. Yeah, it was it was pretty sad. Do people ever tell you you're nuts? All the time. <laughs> oh yeah. But for some reason, people are fascinated with the idea of fishing in a sewer. Um, because it kind of is. There is a lot of the water too, I forgot to mention, is from runoff. To get this, this river gets runoff from the sewers. And so Lino agreed to take me out fly fishing. He'll take just about anybody out to show them fishing and show them the LA River. A big smile on his face. He wants to show the hidden gems that he finds in this water. So I put on waders and we venture out into the river, dodging shopping carts and old cans of just about everything in the water. Ooh. Stinky. At points, it reeks of terribly strong methane gas between what's been put in the water and what grows in it. Walking in the water kicks up the gases trapped in the algae, putting off a putrid smell of rotten eggs. We're going to come out just a little bit here. There's fish right here in front of us. Wow. Using his fly fishing rod, Lino loves to teach, and that's what he does for me, teaching me the basics of fly fishing and letting me try to catch one of the massive carp in this water. They can be 20 pounds or more here. He is routinely pulling out big fish using the fly rod and tiny flies that he makes at home. I honestly enjoy this. Like, I feel like I'm fishing right now. <laughs> You're waiting for you to experience that moment and, and bring one to hand. I honestly feel like... I'm actually doing it. 
and, and it's it's I can't explain the rush. I, it's more of it's it's more satisfying and more rewarding to me doing it this way. I love this. This is like nothing beats this. Nothing beats bringing someone down here to the river and and, and sharing that moment. You can actually see the wake of the fish swimming. Set, set the hook, set the hook, set the, set the hook, hard, 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 hard. Lino's day job is a nurse in a private elementary school. He used to work in social services. He went to graduate school at the University of Southern California. He loves showing his craft. In fact, based on his presence on social media and YouTube, he's a celebrity here. As we're fishing, two other fishermen show up and recognize him immediately from YouTube. Something that happens rather often. Yeah, that was on YouTube. The, the one I catch and cook. He did eat one of the carp for a video, but Lino doesn't usually cook these fish. He catches and releases them. The quality of the fish with what they're eating and what's in the water is suspect, but some people do eat them. For Lino, this is about the thrill of the hunt and teaching the skill. I got my first fly rod when I was 12, I think. Yeah, and I've had it, you know, I've been kind of off and on since then. Yeah, I've been fly fishing a long time. Strip a little line out. There you go. Shake, yeah, there you go. Give it a pop, a little pop. There you go. That's good. You know, you think LA River, they're thinking, oh my God, it's a, you're going to be fishing in a sewer? But I mean, get down here and see how beautiful it actually is. You don't, it's just one of those things you have to experience for yourself and then, and then judge and then see. Yeah, you got all the homeless around, but they're, they know they have a good thing here. So they're not going to do anything. I mean, they're, I've known these folks for forever. In fact, his previous job was finding resources for the homeless, and he would meet some living along the river here while he fished and then got the medicine and counseling. And there are the crowds that show up to watch him do his unconventional work catching sewer salmon. I was fishing here. I caught a big fish, and that thing took me a good 15 minutes to bring in. I was by myself, and I was just fighting this fish, taking my time and just enjoying it. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a big one. So finally I get it there and I kept trying to net it. I kept missing. And I was like, man, I was getting frustrated. And finally I got it to the net. As soon as I put it on the net, in the net, I hear this clapping and cheering and I turn around and there, that whole top of the um, overpass there was fire trucks were lined up and they were all standing there watching me fish. And they were all, yeah, and I was holding it up and they were taking pictures from the bridge. Oh. That was a big one that just jumped out of there. All around us as we're standing in the water, giant carp are swimming by our feet. They're jumping out of the water as dumpster dolphins, as Lino calls them, but they're not biting his fly. We tried for six hours. There were a couple of nibbles, but not much else. Unfortunately, there are more days like this than not. So it just makes the days when you actually catch something so rewarding. Um, but that's true for any species, you know? Set, 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 set. You on? You on? I don't think, I don't oh. think anything's there. Oh, no. For Lino, it's about showing anybody who's interested what it's like to fish the LA River. Even Jimmy Kimmel found him and had him take him out on the water. It's something I never dreamed I'd be doing, standing in the flood basin that I drive along every morning and watching fish swim by. It's nice just to be out, you know, in that anticipation of hooking onto something, especially in this river, that it's just gonna keep you coming back. And then when you catch one, then it's then it's over because then you're going to be wanting to try something new and get better gear. Do you ever have days that you're out here and you think this is crazy or is it beautiful every day that you're out here? Every day. This is my favorite time of day right now, the morning. It's gorgeous. Um, yeah. And I and I come out here in the afternoons too. It's just, um, I mean, just listen to this. It's how, how peaceful it is. It's, it's so nice. You know, in the moments when the on the freeway when you don't have to hear hear that motorcycle in the background, it's like 
you know, you, you thought you would think you're in just any river. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News, along the L.A. River. Since the car was invented, gearheads and auto-obsessives have been racing each other, pressing play by pressing the pedal to the metal. Buying and prepping race cars, that's expensive stuff, out of reach for many. But for one racing series, you don't need buckets of cash, just a good sense of humor. ABC's Mike Dubusky hit the track to find out more. Motorsport has thrilled and delighted gearheads the world over for generations. Whether it's the glitz and glamour of Formula One's Monaco Grand Prix or the World Rally Championship tackling remote snow-covered tracks just outside the Arctic Circle. The wide-open throttle of NASCAR thundering around the Daytona 500. Around they go in a or the shibboleth of human endurance that is the 24 hours of Le Mans. Oh, wait, hang on. These aren't the cathedral-lined streets of Le Mans, France. This is New Jersey Motorsports Park, just outside of Millville. And this isn't the 24 hours of Le Mans. This is the 24 hours of lemons. The whole thing really flowed out of the fact that you could make the pun lemons versus Le Mans. And I don't think we would have done it if that pun hadn't been available. It was that tenuous. Jay Lamb is the chief perpetrator of this racing series. And yes, that's his real title. As first-time visitors to Lemons Races will find, a quick wit will often get you further than a quick car. Here's associate perpetrator Nick Pond. We have always encouraged people to do weird themes team concepts with their car and the level that that reached is just beyond anything that that we would have ever imagined. Lemons race cars are intended to be just that, lemons. Anyone with a driver's license can sign up for one of their two dozen or so annual races. There's just one overarching rule. No team is allowed to race a car that costs more than $500 or at least 500-ish. The judging and the $500 cost is 100% subjective. It's really a tool for us to weed out people who are taking it too seriously. That's really the main thing. Now, part of that subjectivity is that it's actually pretty tough to find a $500 car in 2022. But the other part is that if you're a racing organizer and you see a guy dressed as Snake Plissken pull up in an Escape from New York-themed Cadillac, elaborate chandeliers hanging off the front fenders, what are you going to do? Turn him away? Good lord! In Millville, the man in charge of judging each car's lemons worthiness is Eric Rude, Justice of the Lemons Court. How did you come across this machine? We bought this car. The car on trial? An early Mazda Miata, adorned with a green M&M themed paint job. Do you have any documentation that would prove how you came across this? A little too nice of a paint job, as it turns out, which of course goes against the spirit of lemons. But the team on trial is employing a time-honored lemon strategy. Bribery. You know, I'm seeing an empty truck. Oh, look! Know, wait, oh, oh my God! Oh, come in. <laughs> Fine, you have bribed us with. That's really good stuff. Mid-grade rum. That's really the bribe, which also includes a plate of M&M cookies, goes off to the sizable bribery table, replete with everything from gift baskets, water pistols, layer cakes, and whiskey bottles of questionable quality. The Miata gets spray-painted with a special bribery stencil. The team gets a handful of penalty laps for the crime of bringing too nice of a car. 
and Rude turns to the next defendant, a Dodge Omni GLH. Is it? It's yeah, a yeah. GLH, yeah. yeah. This is a rare classic. I mean, this is exactly what we want to see. I mean, this is perfect. Because it's such a horrible idea every single way. All cars are welcome, so long as they get the okay from the Lemons Court. Modifications, themes, and costumes are all strongly encouraged. Someone took a Toyota MR2 and grafted the back end of an AMC Pacer to not just the back end of it, but the front end of it as well. And if at this point you're wondering what kind of person gets behind the wheel of a Lemons race car... Hi, my name is David I'm the team captain for Cheese Bolt Enterprises. Cheese Bolt Enterprises entered two cars in the Millville race, an 03 Ford Focus with a Melania Trump Be Best theme, as well as a 1987 Ford Tempo. I think I bought the thing out of some guy's backyard for $600, so right there I blew the $500 budget. All of which is to say that price cap isn't really a price cap. <laughs> it's, they, they're definitely loosey-goosey with that. But keeping the cars cheap is foundational to what Lemons organizers, sorry, perpetrators, are trying to do. Jay Lamb says it started in 2006 when he and his friends were working as car journalists. We were all going to a lot of very expensive and self-satisfied and self-referential high-end car events constantly. And it seemed that they were taking themselves very seriously and they were very, very interested in establishing a hierarchy of who was most awesome over everybody else in the car world. And that was the cars you owned, the places you'd been in, the watches you were wearing. And it just it was very tiresome. So Jay started calling up racetracks. It took about 15 telephone calls for one that didn't hang up on me. There was this track called Altamont. That first Lemons race at Altamont Racetrack in California was just Jay and his friends from the car magazines. But the thing with magazine writers is that they are known to write things for magazines. So I got involved with Lemons because I read about it in the car magazines. Hi, my name is Bill Fleming. I drive a 2001 Honda Civic in the 24 Hours of Lemons racing series. Bill Fleming's Lemons team is called Old Guys with Angry Wives. The name, self-explanatory. The car, Breaking Bad themed. We made it breaking as in breaking on a car, breaking bad, because I'm I'm a slow driver and I, I break too early for the corners. Nick Pond says the original team then started organizing more races and soon were tasked with convincing racetracks often the home of high-end sports car owners and professional race car drivers, to host a fleet of rust-bitten, barely-taped-together clunkers. They envisioned it being a demolition derby. They thought there was going to be damage to the facility. Um, they just didn't like the image for you know some of the tracks that have more of a prestigious vibe. But he says over time, tracks became more amenable to the idea of Lemons Racing. In part because we show up on time and we pay our bills, which I think is maybe not necessarily universal in the racing promoter business. It can be funny and look like chaos on the outside, but it's really got to work. We have people who have run this event who've won the Indy 500, and we have people who run this event at the same time on the same track who have never been on a racetrack before. So because of those things, our safety standards are actually more stringent than the norm in this field, not less. That all manifests in a stringent rulebook. For the car, we require a full roll cage, full racing harness, central fire system, racing seat. And then for the person, we require full fire resistant suit, boots, gloves, and then a head and neck. Uh, restraint device. And breaking the rules brings with it a distinctly lemony punishment. 
Back in Millville, Justice Eric Rude is doling out a sentence, charging a team with using an improperly sized fuel can. So it's illegal. It's very explicit in the rules. So now they have to walk around with the illegal gas can to show everybody that this is not legal and that they don't know how to read a rule book. Before they go on the walk of shame, however, we don't know how to read a rule book. Rude hands them a megaphone to carry around with them, just in case they didn't get the message. Nick Pon again. And there's certainly a, a subset that has done lemons and say, you know, I don't find it funny when I get saran wrapped to the top of the car and have to apologize to the paddock. Public shaming is something you're going to have to get used to if you're signing up for a lemons race. For example, the next car to approach the bench, an orange BMW. A rather nice orange BMW. I agree. I agree. The car displeases the court. I decree. That this car is lame! Lame! That banging noise was rude taking a hammer to the car's hood. Playfully, though it must be said not especially gently, the car can still race, just with a spray-painted lame stencil, just so everyone knows, and a bucket of penalty laps. Let us pray that these young gentlemen learn what Levins is all about and stop bringing God it's really racing for people with that sense of humor. As with any racing series that's been going on as long as Lemons has, there are crashes, as David Eckel well knows. Where we had uh, a bit of an accident that mildly totaled the car and we had to build a new race car. I mean, that kind of dashed our hopes to run a couple more races the rest of that year. But then, just when the season appeared to be over for the Cheese Bolt team, Eckel got a call. The company that made our original roll cage saying, all right, we need dimensions for your new roll cage. And I said, what? I didn't order a roll cage. And they said, uh, oh, well, you need to talk to uh, this person because uh, they're donating a, a new roll cage for you to build your next car. You know, that's like a thousand dollar item to, to do that. And I was just bowled over and, and I found out who organized it. And I, and I said, gosh, well, what can I do to pay you back? And, and they just said, you know, just pay it forward. The Lemons perpetrators admit they didn't set out to create a car community. That happened naturally and it impacted all of them. This world has really reshaped my life in a lot of ways, almost all of them really good. Uh, I, I have performed weddings for people at Lemons Races who met at Lemons Races. This has happened a couple of times where they've gotten married at a Lemons Race and then gone on to drive against each other in two separate cars in, uh, in the same race. You know, I've made these lifelong friends out of this thing, and that's what it really is all about with, with the teams who come there is they, they make these friends either – that they start a team with or, you know, the team next to them happens to have something in common. And then, you know, two months later, they're racing together and they're best friends, you know. In that community, hilariously unserious, but seriously accepting, they noticed something else, too. Three or four years ago, we kind of looked around and said, well, this doesn't look like what a race usually looks like. It's, you know, it's it's not a bunch of dudes in their 60s, you know flashing their Rolexes every time they get the chance to. It looks like normal people who probably normally wouldn't be at races. We have a pretty substantial uh, LGBTQ community who participates. We have people of color who come and race. We have a lot of women who race, which even that is something outside the norm for motorsports. A competition that 
isn't too serious really connects people on a level that we certainly didn't design into the system and didn't necessarily expect when starting it. But 16 years later, we've seen that that's probably the most important thing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. If you've been to an airport in the past few months, you know that travel is back and going big. People are pressing play by flocking to their favorite beaches, parks, and cities. But other travel trends have emerged from the pandemic more popular than ever. ABC's Michelle Franzen is taking us glamping. Jason, it's playtime again. The excitement of planning, packing, and hitting the road for that vacation. For Ryan and his friends, that holiday road leads from Long Island to a glamping retreat and farm in the Catskills called the Outlier Inn, about two hours north of New York City. Me and my girlfriend, we this is our fourth glamping site. Uh, we love glamping, and we looked it up on Airbnb, and this looked like a great site, and it is a great site, and we're having a great time right now. The accommodations on this sprawling property include tents, tiny houses, Airstream trailers, and even geodesic domes. That's what Ryan and his friend Perla booked. We've been in safari tents. We've been in yurts. But the domes, I have to say, they're a different experience. For owner Josh Druckmann, it's a dream come true. He started by converting a bungalow into a recording studio for bands two decades ago and expanded when Airbnb launched. But he said COVID really put his place on the map. I would say since the pandemic started, the business has at least doubled. Druckmann says the idea of a remote vacation and connecting with nature hasn't let up. I get a lot of first-time campers. My camping spots are more <laughs> like glamping spots because uh, they all have beds with nice clean sheets. Um, there are proper kitchens set up and, and outdoor showers and bathrooms. So it's a good introductory way for people to, to kind of get out into nature without completely roughing it. Glamping is having a moment. Brian Estep is CEO of Glamping Hub, the biggest online booking platform for glamping. He says interest and bookings grew 200% in the past few years, and the industry hasn't peaked yet. We think there are about 40,000 glamping <clears throat> units in the United States right now, and over the next five years, <clears throat> it's uh, it, it should increase to about 100,000. Estep says travelers want a place that's off the beaten path where they can disconnect or connect in new ways. We have 36 types of units on our site that go every, everywhere from tiny houses to caves to tree houses, which are really popular. Travelers can even book a stagecoach stay on a Navajo sheep ranch in Arizona, where they can also learn about the Native American culture. Vanessa Vitale is Chief Hospitality Officer with Collective Retreats, a luxury brand of outdoor glamping resorts. She says travelers are back after lockdowns looking for unique and more meaningful experiences. We saw in the time that we weren't able to travel how much we all missed it. And really, what is travel? It's the discovery of new experiences. It's being slightly out of your comfort zone, in some cases, very out of one's comfort zone. In order for kind of self and group growth. That's ultimately what it is, broadening your horizons. Collective Retreats is expanding its horizons with more resorts set to open. The company chooses unique outdoor locations that are close to urban centers. 
It already has retreats in Texas, Colorado, and New York's Governor's Island, just a short ferry ride from Lower Manhattan. We have a perfect view of the Statue of Liberty, perfect view of Lower Manhattan. It really gives you a feeling of being very close, but also very far away. It's quiet, you're in nature. You're sitting next to the bonfire, looking at the city and the statue. There are glamping tents with beds, and Vitaly says they've added standalone shelters with private bathrooms and decks. Add to that a restaurant, a bar, and a fire pit. A way, she says, to unwind without having to travel too far. People want to connect again. They want to connect to each other, but they want to do it in a safe environment. Back in the New York Catskills, Ryan says he feels recharged with a simpler getaway. It has everything you possibly need to feel comfortable in nature, in the wilderness, in the woods. His friend Danny is also liking it. He's new to glamping, but used to camp. My wife's always liked the ocean. Me, I've always been drawn to the woods and the mountains. And uh, as a young man, I used to do it, and I haven't done it in a long time. And it really brings back a lot of uh, to me being here today. Now ready, Danny says, to join the ranks of glamping. Michelle Franz and ABC News. With political divides deepening, environmental issues tugging at our collective conscience, and inflation knocking at the door, who among us hasn't fantasized about selling all our belongings and just going away? Pressing play by pressing the gas pedal on an RV. ABC's Jim Ryan introduces us to a group of people who have turned that fantasy into reality. Americans have always had a wanderlust. With 3.8 million square miles to explore, their own country has provided a blank canvas to be painted with experiences. The very first recreational vehicle was the Pierce Arrow Touring Landau, which rolled off the assembly line in 1910, offering a fold-down bed in the back seat, a chamber pot toilet, and a sink. A few years later, so-called tin can tourists were cooking cans of beans and dining roadside. A hundred years later, RVs are a multi-billion dollar industry with nearly 600,000 campers, travel trailers and motorhomes sold last year. It's given birth to YouTube channels, Facebook pages and massive trade exhibits. Here we go. The ultimate RV show is back. Please. The RV Chris, lifestyle, as it's known, right has spawned its own celebrities ultimate like the getaway couple. Hey guys, I'm Ray. And I'm Jason. And we are in Elkhart, Indiana this week. The here. RV community has its own lingo. Boondocking is extreme camping without water, sewer or electricity. It's the opposite of glamping, which is about as five star as camping can get. RVers even have their own music. Riding, riding in my RV, wherever I want to be, because I'm free. A song by Robert Morales. It's nothing if not a passionate population, as suggested by the YouTube channel called Love Your RV. We sold our house and went on a one-year trip, supposedly a one-year trip, back in 2011. Loved it so much, so we've continued on. So on Love Your RV, I post a lot of videos. I love to do mods and upgrades to my rig. Mods, short for modifications, are the creative pride and joy of any RV enthusiast. My travel trailer, it's a pretty good size. It's 33 foot long. I made a lot of modifications to it. Thad Torix found that necessity really was the mother of invention. I work remotely and I needed office space. And so the rear portion of this particular RV was a set of bunk beds. And I took that out 
and converted that to an office space. And that's worked uh, real well. But before he even hooked up his travel trailer behind his pickup truck, Torex knew he needed to get rid of some stuff. We eliminated 80% of our possessions. It felt like uh, freedom. It felt like everything I was able to get rid of and decide that I didn't need was just one less thing for me to worry about. And, uh, and that was a welcome change. And about a year ago, Torex and his wife fueled up and drove away. We started in uh, Joplin, Missouri. Spent a few days in Kansas City, west into Nebraska. Spent some time up in northern Utah around Salt Lake area. Got to spend a lot of time in southeast Idaho. Made it as far west as Mount Rainier. That was as far as we went, though. Along the way, the couple learned some hard lessons about budgeting. I moved from a 3,500-square-foot house into a 200-square-foot RV. And I would tell you that the monthly housing expense is almost identical. The Torix has also learned about personal space, or more accurately, a lack of personal space. If you're sensitive, it it can be easy to to, uh, find somebody annoying pretty quickly. So the road trip continued. Thad and his wife left Washington State and headed southeast. And it was in September in the Carolinas when uh, my uh, wife left me for another fella. That made for a tough season. Reality came crashing down, and Thad realized that living out of a travel trailer wasn't too different from living at home. I think that we equate living in an RV with vacation, right? That's accurate to an extent. At the same time, your entire life is still happening. It's just in a different setting. Torex returned home to finalize his divorce and then continued the nomadic life of the RVer. Despite the loss of a marriage, the fuel prices that seem to have no ceiling, and the overall hardship of it, that Torex has grown to love life on the road. The magic is being way out and getting to just sit outside and see the night sky in a way that you just cannot see in any other way. What a reminder of like, wow, I get to be a part of this. I think it's healthy. I think it's humbling, and I think it's healthy. Writing. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Riding in my RV. Wherever I want to be. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, talk to one of them they stay anonymous i can't hang up that's all the rules i never know what's going to happen we get serious ones i've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison i've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones i talked to a guy with a goose laugh somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends i never know what's going to happen it's a great show subscribe today beautiful anonymous people who disappear without a trace the most notorious murder cases in new york pure evil and the most devious killers there's a hannibal lecter feel to him for chilling true crime stories follow the true crime nyc podcast wherever you listen It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. When it comes to pressing play for many, nothing beats two things on which you literally press play, music and video games. This hour, we'll take a look at both, starting with the 100th birthday of one of the most celebrated stages in the country, where masters come to play. Welcome to the Hollywood Bowl. It's the site of what's perhaps The Doors' most famous live album, recorded at the Hollywood Bowl in 1968. And now, here they are! 
It's also where the Beatles blew out the throats of screaming fans for three shows in 1964 and 1965. Obviously, it absolutely sold out. It was pandemonium. You could hear fans screaming um, down on Hollywood Boulevard. They had to bring the Beatles in in an armored car. And when the armored car left, there were people who ran after them onto the freeway. Derek Trout is a writer for the LA Philharmonic and Hollywood Bowl. He's been chronicling the bowl for this year's 100th anniversary. And that album, The Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, is made up of songs from all three shows. Listening to the album now, you probably hear better than what you would have heard um, here because there was so much screaming in the audience that it was probably like standing in a wind tunnel trying to listen to that concert. And he says it's well documented that playing the bowl for The Beatles was a really big deal. They grew up as kids in Liverpool listening to live from the Hollywood Bowl albums, record albums, and it meant something to them. And so they came here and it was really what they later described as the most significant concert on that tour um, because of being in this space and like its history. And that's part of what makes the Hollywood Bowl legendary, its space and its history, which we talked about on a recent warm summer evening from one of the best seats in the house. So we are sitting in the last row of the Hollywood Bowl, the last bench. There are 17,500 seats in front of us. Um, We're in this beautiful, naturally formed canyon in the Hollywood Hills. A canyon that was just dirt, a few shrubs, coyotes, and deer in the early 20th century. But piano teacher Artie Mason Carter had a vision. They were coming out of a world war and a global pandemic. And she thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a place where people could come and enjoy music together? So she formed a music-loving posse made up of business and religious leaders, a choir teacher. They all got together and they combed the Hollywood Hills until uh, an actor named Ellis Reed happened upon this canyon and noticed it had magical acoustical properties. You could speak on one side of it and your voice would echo and be heard on the other. And so they had to own the land. They knew that this was the kind of shape that they were looking for, for a good concert venue? Exactly. They wanted a natural amphitheater. And this is the largest natural amphitheater in the United States. Um, The canyon has been regraded for the seating areas somewhat, but basically the shape it is today was the shape that they found it in. They were able to lease the land, throw up a stage and some benches. And in 1922, the Hollywood Bowl opened for business. We don't have a recording of that first show, but one of the earliest is from 1928. The LA Phil doing Dvorak's Carnival Overture. It's part of a vinyl box set celebrating the Bulls' 100th anniversary. Now it's 1926. People are loving the Bull, and the benches and stage they slapped into place it's not cutting it. So they bring in famous architect Myron Hunt to make the bowl legit. And this 17,000 seat seating area is actually in the shape of a balloon because Myron Hunt loved balloons. <laughs> Wait a second. What? Yeah, I, it's, you can't believe it, but if you look at it from an overhead photograph, it looks like a giant balloon. If you, when you walk into the Rose Bowl, also designed by Myron Hunt, there's a giant balloon you walk under. Um, it was just his thing. Like a blow-up balloon for kids' parties? Like exactly, or like a hot air balloon. He thought it um, was a hopeful shape, and it went with 
um, the feeling of Southern California was this hopeful place. So he imagined that the base of the balloon is the stage. And then this is we are all in the balloon raising up to the stars above. It's beautiful and ridiculous all at once. And the bones and the layout would pretty much stay unchanged through today. But the acoustics, they've been tinkering with that forever. By the 1930s, they added amplification in time for Fred Astaire to perform with the Los Angeles Phil in 1937. But the iconic stage, the massive band shell that looks like a series of telescoping rainbows, made for some issues. There were two acoustical problems. One was sound didn't come out from the stage to reach the audience. And two, sound didn't bounce through the shell. So the orchestra couldn't hear each other. If the musicians on one side of the orchestra can't hear what the musicians on the other side of the orchestra are, it becomes very challenging. Steve Miller has experienced some of those challenges firsthand over the years. When, when they designed it, you know, acoustics were different and it was really designed for live orchestras and we're electric so uh, that that would that's kind of a drawback but they've been working on that and they've got they, it sounds good now maroon 5 played the bowl in 2011. guitarist james valentine agreed the acoustics weren't always great it's, it's you know you don't really go there for the sound it's for the <laughs> to be completely honest the, um it's i mean it sound is 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 good and they've done Actually, over the years, they, they've improved the sound there a lot since some of the early shows that I've, I've, I've been to. But um, it's it's more about the ambience and the, the, the location. But they've worked really hard over the years to really dial in the sound. And it sounded amazing. The acoustics here are perfect. V is the singer for Emotional Oranges. One of the groups who took the stage the night I was there. Other venues sometimes are a little hollow or the sound just doesn't resonate as much. But here, the way they designed it, it's like butter. It was so much fun singing here. James Valentine mentioned the ambiance of the Hollywood Bowl as being an attraction. And that's really half the draw here. This place, it's a vibe. It is the perfect venue. We were just talking about that because you never, like, you can just come and bring your own stuff with your friends and it's outdoor. I like outdoor venues, so it's super, I, I think it's perfect. On a typical summer night like tonight, the Hollywood Bowl is packed with picnickers like Rachel and her friends, enjoying one of the 15 spots set aside for you to chow down and hang out. You have quite a spread here. <laughs> so she has salami and turkey and we have cheeses and wine plantain chips, um, some basil pesto sauce, strawberries. Growing up in Los Angeles, I have also had some memorable nights at the Hollywood Bowl. The three of us went to the Hollywood Bowl. I do not remember what we saw there. It was probably 4th of July or something. Yeah, but bought a nice picnic basket. One night in the 80s, when I was about eight or nine years old, I went with my parents, Pete and Diane, and some of their friends, and things went south. He started throwing up, and so we had to leave, but... In the middle of the bowl, I was throwing up? That's oh. why we left. I had appendicitis, which no one knew at the time, and one of the quirks of the Hollywood Bowl is, because it's built into this hill, parking is limited and stacked, bumper to bumper. Once you're parked, you're there until the show is over. You can't leave because your car's blocked in. Did you think about calling an ambulance for me? No. no. So your only child is throwing up <laughs> and you're just standing around waiting for the concert to end? Yeah, because we had no I choice. Mean, you could have picked me up and, and, and run me to a hospital. 
No, it, you, you, it you, 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 you weren't worth that, that kind of an effort. We didn't know it. <laughs> I, wait, hold on. I wasn't worth that kind of an effort? No. <laughs> okay. All right. By the way, Bowl historian Derek Traub says complaining about Hollywood Bowl parking is a tradition as old as the bowl itself. Even in the 1920s, there were people writing letters to the editor of newspapers complaining about parking at the bowl, complaining about getting stuck in stack parking. And these are Model Ts that are getting stuck in stack parking. And he also says my appendicitis, that was nothing. In 1927, a woman went into labor and gave birth to a baby under the stage like there were dressing rooms down there while the orchestra was playing a Beethoven symphony above her. Back on stage, Cut Chemist is mixing up that vinyl box set of Hollywood Bowl performances through the years. Another track, the LA Philharmonic Orchestra doing Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, which on 4th of July is set to a spectacular display of fireworks orchestra soaring with perfectly timed explosions lighting up the Los Angeles summer sky. The Hollywood Bowl has just always been this kind of community gathering place. The founders believed that music was this great instrument for democracy. It was how you build community is through music. And so there's something nice about coming here on Independence Day, about a day that's meaningful for our country and just sharing music together. It's like the biggest barbecue <laughs> in the city. And it's a great place to press play for those on stage and those making memories in the seats. Pressing play for many means literally pressing play on their favorite video games. So what's hot this summer? ABC's Rob Holly takes us on a quest. Ah, summertime. Getting outside, going to the beach, maybe up to the mountains. Or if you're one of the 215 million people across the country who play video games at least once a week, your fun may not include much sun, but instead the glow of a screen. Video games are in some ways ubiquitous. They're everywhere. I mean, think about we all carry smartphones with us. I'm going to play Wordle today. You're playing a video game. John Paul Dyson heads up the International Center for the History of Electronic Games at the Strong National Museum of Play. And while, yes, lots of us are still playing Wordle, when we think about video games, we're often thinking about some of the monster titles, like Mario, Minecraft, or Madden. The summer of 2022, no slouch when it comes to new games to play. John Davison, publisher at IGN, says one of the standouts is Elden Ring. The great Elden Ring was shattered. An action role-playing game that has become one of the best reviewed of all time. It's incredibly hard action adventure. It's been very, very successful. Lego and Star Wars fans still making their way through one of the biggest titles of the year. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker Saga. Or if hacking and slashing is your thing, the latest version in a series that's now 25 years old, Diablo, is out and it's free. Though in between battling demons, the game throws all sorts of opportunities at you to buy things to make your character even stronger. Another way to make video games part of your summer Time to go on a road trip. Rule one, do not drive like you're in Grand Theft Auto. Rule two, set your GPS for Rochester, New York. Back we go to the strong National Museum of Play 
and Dr. John Paul Dyson. When people come to the Strong, they should expect to play. <laughs> and play in all sorts of ways. Some old classic arcade games or a giant version of Super Mario Brothers. And yes, right in the museum, parents, you get a chance to introduce your kids to something they may have never seen before. An arcade. Where you're going to find games like Street Fighter. A Hot Wheels driving game. Daredevil. And one where you become some foot-stomping, pizza-eating turtles. But playing some great old games is just the start. You can also go way back to the very beginning of video games. They're rare, unique objects, like the prototype of asteroids, or the first public demonstration of a video game from the late 1950s. And then there's the classic tic-tac-toe. Shall we play a game? No, 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 not the War Games version. This was a tic-tac-toe game created by a high school kid in the 1960s out of hundreds of old telephone relays. It's an amazing piece of programming. And you use an old rotary phone. Yeah, a rotary phone. Kids, you're gonna have to ask your parents how to work it. The museum has thousands of artifacts and games. We're doing a 90,000 square foot expansion that will have almost 30,000 square feet of exhibit space dedicated to video games. It'll be home for our Women in Games initiative, um, which looks at the role of women in making and creating and playing games. Seeing the way so many of these games have been created might just turn your summer of play into a summer of creation. Some of the most prominent creators aren't even making games at all, though. They're making stuff about games, like streaming superstar ninja. What's up, guys? Today, I have a super unique Minecraft channel. maven Dan TDM. Hey, everyone! Dan here. And Brian Grant, who's created an entire channel around a mobile game, Marvel Contest of Champions. All right. What's going on, everybody? And he tells right us on. this kind of happened by accident. I never really planned to you know, make videos for years uh, around this one game. Instead, he started doing the videos to promote a website that he wanted to build to build up some experience toward his ultimate goal. Because I wanted to learn how to program and make my own games. Eventually, I realized uh, I'm not very good at that. And uh, people kind of like my videos. So, uh, you know, kind of just stuck with making videos. He live streams just about every night playing the game answering questions, and maybe most important of all, nurturing a community. It's completely true. Without the community, there's zero chance that I could be here. If this sounds something you might like, a bit of advice from someone with six years of experience and nearly 75 million video views on his channel, Contest Champion. Make the type of content that you enjoy watching. When it comes to your early videos, Brian says, don't sweat it. No one's watching when you first start. So I know it's really hard to be self-conscious about the way you look or how you sound. And then there's the trolls. It is almost certain they will show up. People will just kind of lash out. And I, I don't take it personally. I think it's just something going on with them. You're not really talking about me. You're, you're having your own problems. And maybe the best piece of advice for any content creator, keep Pushing. I see kind of everything as just like a, a big learning experience. And one of the best ways to learn a lot. And I would always encourage people to do a number of different things. That is Jonathan Smith, head of production at TT Games, the studio behind one of the biggest games of the year. Lego Star Wars, the Skywalker saga. If you want to help build the next great gaming world, you may be able to no matter what you do. We are so close to real life. 
multiplied by the power of imagination. So when anything is possible, then the skills of an architect, a costume designer, a music composer, a writer, just as sort of valuable as what you might conventionally have thought of as the technical skills required to make video games. For anyone who feels they want to create a game. Trust in that passion and and pursue it. Um, If your imagination um, is engaged by the possibilities of this medium, which is still yet to be explored, and all the creative potential there, then you should be developing your skills in this area. You have something to bring to video games. You can create new video games. If you've ever made it all the way through a major modern video game, you'll already know those credits can look as long as a movie's. So be ready to be part of a team. There are very few people who can do everything, and a video game, particularly at scale, requires such a wide variety now of areas of expertise. But even on a huge team of fellow video game lovers and makers, Jonathan says, remember why you want to build, because that matters. There's always space for new voices. And I think if if you are personally engaged with the opportunity to express yourself, then to be really aware and to nurture that distinctive new voice is going to stand you in really good stead when you come to share those ideas and those outlooks with other people. People want to hear from you. For ABC News, I'm Rob Hawley. You're listening to Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson. For millions this summer, pressing play will mean heading to a massive outdoor area for a couple of days of music, food, and fun. The music festival, it can be like seeing your favorite playlist come to life. And while it seems like live music lovers can hit a festival every weekend this summer, that wasn't always the case. Here's ABC News music writer and producer Josh Johnson. You're standing in a crowded field alongside thousands of people you don't know on what feels like the hottest day of the year, all while shelling out what might as well be a car payment to buy a drink. Does this sound fun to you? I'm, of course, talking about the Summer Music Festival, which, despite that unfavorable, but let's face it, not entirely inaccurate description, has become a hugely popular summer activity. But it wasn't always that way. I went to my first ever music festival 15 years ago this summer, Lollapalooza 2007 in Chicago, Illinois. Back then, the festival landscape was a whole lot different. Can you spell Lollapalooza for me? Yeah, L-O-L-A-P-O. Originally founded in 1991 as a touring festival by Jane's Addiction frontman Perry Farrell, Lollapalooza launched alongside the height of the 90s alternative and grunge scene. After 1997's electronic-focused lineup didn't muster too much enthusiasm, Lollapalooza was officially cancelled in 1998. That, followed by the disaster that was Woodstock 99 the following year, seemed to spell the end of music festivals. Still, signs of life continued to percolate. A little event called Coachella began in 1999. Meanwhile, jam band enthusiasts found a haven on a Tennessee farm with Bonnaroo, which began in 2002. Two years later, Lollapalooza attempted to re-enter the fold again as a touring festival, only for it to be felled by low ticket sales. In 2005, though, Lala ditched its touring roots and retooled itself as a destination festival held in Chicago's Grant Park. A two-day event expanded to three in 2006 and plotted its return for 2007. So, how did we get here? I asked that to Laura Jane Grace, lead singer of the punk band Against Me, one of the many bands I saw at Lala 07. For years, America was like caught in the Woodstock mentality. 
like it couldn't accept the idea that there could be multiple festivals all over the country. Europe, however, had long figured it out. You know, it's been such like a culture and rite of passage in Europe for forever, right? That's Daniel Kessler, guitarist for the band Interpol. To me, a lot of blues are like, and it, it becoming finding its footing in Chicago and in such like a beautiful place like Grant Park, like it's it's doing it to this day. That I think was kind of like a major achievement for just, you know, yeah, setting the pace for the US. But there was a breaking point or a tipping point where then it like was like, okay, all of a sudden, yeah, now we get it. We understand how Europe does it or something, you know, enough other bands had gone over and it kind of clicked after a point. When I went to Law 07, I really had no idea what to expect. There were too many bands, too many stages, and most importantly, too many people for it to be possible to be in the front row for every band I wanted to see. That was especially true for the headliners. Sure, you could spend all day at one stage to secure a spot for Pearl Jam, but then you'd be missing everything that was happening everywhere else. And once I got to Grant Park, it quickly became clear that it was the everything and the everywhere that makes festivals so special. And people come to see the big headliner, and they're there all day, and they discover all these amazing new bands that they probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise. It's in those undercard sets where you feel that infectious, I can't believe we're here energy. You may even stumble upon a band on the cusp of a big break. Brad Schultz, guitarist for the band Cage the Elephant. I think we started with probably a few hundred people and the crowd, people were passing by and walking up and became a pretty, like our biggest crowd to that point. And we were so, we were like, oh my God, this is huge. It was probably like a thousand people. <laughs> She said, I never seen a man who looks so well alone. Could you use a little company? When they played Lollapalooza 2007, they were on the literal last line of the lineup. Now they're a festival headliner. Festivals also allow the artists themselves to enjoy those moments as members of the audience. Drummer Jim Eno remembers seeing LCD Sound System at Bala 07 the day before his band Spoon was scheduled to play. The most memorable thing about the festival was the last song they played was... They timed it so like right when they finished, right across the stage facing us, Daft Punk came on and played, which was like an amazing moment. What makes live music so cool in general is that it's all happening just for that one moment, all in real time. And with so much live music happening all at once, the potential for those moments is magnified at festivals. Whether you're discovering your new favorite band, witnessing the breakout of an up and coming artist, or even if you do decide to wait all day for the headliner, Festivals do a great job of allowing you to live your own personal story while also feeling like you're a part of everyone else's. Playing can mean a lot of things, and for many, there's nothing more satisfying than playing music. But picking up a new instrument can seem intimidating. Let's take a journey with ABC's Sherry Preston, a veteran sax player who's never tried her hand at a string instrument until now. A couple of months ago, I started taking ukulele lessons. Like, I got a ukulele for Christmas a while back, but I'd never really learned a whole lot on it. So I joined a class at the local women's club in my town, and, well, it was really, really fun. One, two, three, four, yeah, we're not all that accomplished yet. Please don't be judgy. But we do have a good time. Trisha Turiano is the one who wrangled us into the lessons. As the um, chairperson of the music department at the women's club, I wanted to find something, well, first that had to do with music, but was also very accessible. And I also wanted to have something that was joyous and kind of casual, so there wasn't a lot of pressure. Ukulele came to mind, and it seems to be going really well. And Paul Byrne is our teacher. 
What, so what is it about the ukulele, you think, that makes it so such an enjoyable instrument? Um, I think the accessibility and the affordability of it and the fact that you can play lots and lots of different songs and styles, uh, but it doesn't have the complexity that the guitar has. But you have enough to play songs, so it's wonderful for that. It's a great instrument to start out with. But there's a big difference between our ukulele playing and the playing of a master, like Jake Shimabukuru. He has been called the Jimi Hendrix of the ukulele. Jake was kind enough to let us interview him, and we started off by finding out that we have all been pronouncing the name of the instrument wrong. Uh, it's pronounced ukulele, and it's two uh, native Hawaiian words, uku, which means flea, and lele, which means jumping. So it's the direct translation is jumping flea, ukulele. And I got into it because, you know, I was born and raised in Honolulu, Hawaii, and my mom played from the time she was a kid. So when I was four years old, she sat me down, put the ukulele in my hands, taught me a few chords, and I just fell in love with it. Jake's reasons for picking up the ukulele are the same as Paul and Trisha's and mine. There are a million things you can do with it. Yeah, I think it's exactly that, you know, the simplicity of it, that instant gratification, you know, when you pick it up, because it's one of the few string instruments that I can think of where you can play full chords with just one finger. So it makes it very accessible, you know, to people who have never played an instrument before. And the strings are also made of nylon, so they're softer on your fingers. So it doesn't hurt as much, um, not like steel strings. But the other thing is its size, you know, it's very um, kid-friendly. It's easy for a child to get their arms around the instrument and to hold it comfortably. It's not very heavy, and they're also very affordable. Jake Shimabukuro is a ukulele virtuoso whose career was jump-started about 16 years ago with, what else, a virtual video. So I was in New York City doing a show at B.B. King's, and... While I was there, I was asked to do an interview. So we met over in Central Park and they asked me a few questions and then they asked me to play a song. So we were right outside of Strawberry Fields. So I thought, oh, I'll do, a, I'll do this George Harrison song that, I, that I've been working on. And so I played While My Guitar Jenny Weeps. It was the first time I, I performed it as a solo arrangement like that. And, uh, and it aired for a local TV show. But then right around that time, that's when YouTube was starting out. So someone took a clip from this TV show of me playing this piece and put it on YouTube. And that video, you know, it was one of the first viral videos on, on YouTube. In all the people I talked to about playing the ukulele, there was one word that kept coming back again and again, joy. It's just fun to play it. Elizabeth Shaw is one of my classmates. I love picking it up at home, and I find myself listening to music and searching for the chords online and then trying to play along to things. Performing for people is a different thing, but, you know, I can do it in my house all I like. <laughs> and I couldn't let the opportunity to interview one of the best performers on this instrument in the world go by without learning a little something. So, like, what are some of the chords that you already know? Well, I know C, I know F. I know A minor, I know D, I know E flat. Okay, try this chord, okay? So your fourth string is the string closest to your chin, okay? So keep that one open. Okay. Then the third string below it, keep that open. Now okay. take your index finger and put it in the second fret okay. of the second string. Got it. Now take your baby finger and put it on the fifth fret of the first string. Okay. And I'll strum that. Ooh, I yeah, like that. That's, that's beautiful. That's one of my, that's a beautiful chord. <laughs> 
listen, I'm going to let you go. And thank you for that. What's that chord called again? I guess you could just call it a C, yeah, a C with the with the add nine, add sharp eleven. That's too many things. It's just I mean, so that's going to be called the chord that Jake taught me. There it is. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. Take care. Aloha. Aloha, Jake. Seriously, get a ukulele or an ukulele and learn to play it. They do bring joy, and who doesn't need a little more of that around these days? We've explored a lot of different kinds of play on this year's Press Play Special. And before you go, I wanted to bring you one last story of play that inspired me this year. And the Grammy goes to... The story of how the play and passion of two young women turned into a Grammy. The unofficial Bridgerton musical... That's how the story ended this year, but let's go back to how it started. It's January 2021. The time has come for the social season. Bridgerton hits Netflix, and the soapy Regency drama has everyone under its spell, including 22-year-old Abigail Barlow, a singer and songwriter from Alabama, who posts this TikTok from what looks like her bedroom, a TikTok that would change her life. Okay, but what if Bridgerton was a musical? What a beautiful party. By the time she finishes the song, it's very clear she knows this is something. Right? Barlow had just recently met composer and musical prodigy Emily Baer, then 19. Emily helped her with the music for that first song, and then the two of them, encouraged by comments from the first video, workshopped more and more songs, posting them on TikTok. My friend, my Followers can't get enough. They love the show Bridgerton. They love Barlow and Bear. Barlow and Bear love the show, and they love to make music. The whole thing is a labor of love, a tribute to something they love. And within six weeks, they have 15 songs. This is what you call a honeymoon. They sing around our separate rooms. Now the cast of Bridgerton knows about it and loves it. The author of Bridgerton knows about it and loves it. Netflix gives its stamp of approval. And on September 10th, 2021... After more than 200 million views on TikTok, the unofficial Bridgerton musical album is released. It hits the top 40 of the Billboard 200 album chart, and then The Unthinkable, the album which started as internet videos made by a couple of fans inspired by their favorite new TV show, gets nominated for a Grammy. And finally, the unofficial Bridgerton... Barlow and Bear in Tears, their album The Final Nominee announced in the category. Then things get crazier. They're on stage performing in London. Hi, Bridgerton musical fans. We are so excited because you really showed up and sold out our show here in London at Leicester Square. They're on talk shows. Now they're famous and the whirlwind 16 months wraps up with them winning the Grammy for Best Musical Theater Album the youngest ever winners in the category. Uh, a year ago when I asked the internet what if Bridgerton was a musical, I could not have imagined we would be holding a Grammy in our hands. I was backstage with them in Las Vegas as they celebrated their win. I mean, we didn't set out for really anything. We were just having fun writing it. And it was in one of the worst times of COVID and it got us excited in the morning to wake up and do something. And it kind of just snowballed into an, an album and a concept. And now here we are. <laughs> and that's what play is all about. There's no real goal other than to have fun. You're not trying to win a Grammy. But when you take something you love, a 
TV show, a song, a video game, a book, and you let it inspire you, let it guide your play, there's no telling where you might end up. Press Play was presented by ABC News correspondent Jason Nathanson and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. ABC News, winner of nine Edward R. Murrow Awards, including overall excellence in both television and radio. ABC News, America's number one news source.